Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean DeBias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. I'd like to welcome Genentech CEO Alexander Hardy to the Reboot Chronicles. Pioneering the biotech industry back in the 70s, for gosh sake, Genentech is one of the world's most innovative pharmaceutical companies and a leader in breakthrough, life-saving drugs, treatments, technologies, and other things that we'll hear about. Now part of Roche, the combined entities have tens of thousands of patents and employ over 100,000 employees in over 100 countries who delivered 68, over $68 billion in revenue last year alone. So just an amazing company. Alexander, it's so good to see you. Dean, it's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, thanks for making time. The um, I've always been a big fan of Genentech, you know, working in Silicon Valley so 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 long over the years and uh, had a couple of meetings at your place, but it, I, I think things have changed. So I just normally don't do this, but I think it'd be great to just start out with telling us a little bit about what's the size and scope of Genentech now. You know, you've got, uh, you know, 13,000 employees, you've got science-based people, business-based people. It's just... Uh, how do you, what's, what's it all about these days and what's, uh, what's the core mission if you, if you could maybe start us out there? Well, the core mission is unchanged. Uh, focus on breakthrough science to address severe, significant unmet medical needs. Uh, focused on therapeutics, but really it's breakthrough science. So uh, we are innovation pure play uh, as, a, as a combined company. We spend $15 billion a year on research and development. Amazing. Which puts us up at, you know, towards the top of any company in any industry, uh, top in our industry in, in terms of investment. Right. And uh, yes, it's all about innovation. So uh, we have 39 uh, drugs that have achieved breakthrough treatment designation from the FDA. That's a good benchmark of, of innovation against significant unmet medical need because the FDA awards those when they see innovation that that's really, really important medically. Uh, so right. that's a, a very, very important benchmark. Uh, we've launched uh, 22 drugs over the last 12 years. Um, and again, these are, these are uh, focused on therapeutics towards, you know, the most significant uh, medical issues that, that the world faces. So a heritage in oncology, very large in neuroscience, growing in ophthalmology, uh, a significant presence in uh, anti-infectives uh, mm -hmm. because we believe that that's so important from a public health standpoint. It's really challenging science, but we're drawn to the the areas where the, the there's a significant unmet need, but the science is challenging. I bet, and it, it kind of what I've always been impressed about. I haven't been to your facility probably in ten years, and those stats are amazing. What you've done in the last decade, but. Um, I just love how you take the long view. Most public corporations sadly don't, or they can't. It's consumer driven. A lot of things change on a dime. Whereas you're taking a long view, as are many of your competitors. And I, uh, but you seem to optimize it better than others. Just what I've seen from afar. And you, know, you know when to push innovation, when to pull back, when to license, when to cooperate. And we can jump into all of that as well. But um, how do you how do you kind of balance that out? The, the that long term view that 
long-term and, you know, making the big bets in the, in, in the horizon versus what most CEOs, if you go down to Google, you're making long-term bets. It's, it's not life or death technology. So that's number one. You're doing incredible transformative stuff or you don't do it. You move on to the next one. But, uh, it's, um, it seems to be so foreign to other companies as taking a, a 10 year view of not just the pipeline, but maybe just one product. Well, you know, part of it is the very nature of what we're trying to do. If you're trying to, 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 to develop a breakthrough against a really tough, intractable disease, uh, it's going to take time. Uh, and, uh, you know, many of our drugs, many of our breakthroughs, we may touch on a few of them. Mm -hmm. in this conversation have taken 20 years uh, to get from discovery uh, to patience. Uh, and there's been a lot of trial and error during those times. So part of it is just the nature of what we're trying to do. Right. Uh, that, that, that leads us to take a long-term view. But I do think we're, we're differentiated even in our industry by our focus on the, on the longer term. Part of that is actually weird. You know, Genentech's always been that way. Uh, we were a very conscious decision as a leadership team that we don't focus on the quarter or the year. Uh, we focus on the next five to 10 years. We, we set really uh, ambitious goals around the five, 10 year uh, mark. And, and that's what we hold ourselves and the, the organization uh, aligned on. But we also have a, a benefit. Genentech is, is part of the Roche Group has been since 2009 and the Roche group is, is actually has been, it's been a really good place for Genentech to be part of. It's a large global company. Uh, and, uh, they have a, a unique shareholding structure where they have two classes of share and an involvement, right. uh, right. of a, a family shareholder base, uh, that have, that have recently celebrated that, that the 125th anniversary of, the Roche Group. I mean, so you, even though we're 45 years old, they're 125 years old. Uh, the the family members, um, many of them have uh, uh, the, the the name uh, of the company in their surnames. Right. The full name of of, of Roche is Hoffman LaRoche, and there are you know the, the, the Hoffman family are still actively involved in the company, and that that creates that that long term mindset is is absolutely central to the way they think about it. And, yeah, there's two uh, things I love about that. I remember when they, you know, when you had the merger, technically what merger was what it was, I think the, uh, the two things that were smart was, you know, A, it's another company that's very patient and knows how to invest capital and resources, but they also in a way left you alone. They could have, you know, smushed Genentech into a bigger monster. And I love the fact that they didn't, you're still a core Silicon Valley company. And what does that mean in terms of your culture? What's, what's it like now, you know? years later. I mean, you started there in 2005, for gosh sakes, you've been in many roles. Yes. I mean, it, you know, it was brilliant the way that Roche uh, handled the acquisition and the integration of Genentech. I mean, I think it's a, it's a textbook example. Of course, I, I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm still here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I, know, I know that feeling. Yes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the people of Genentech, uh, the leaders at Genentech had, you know, lots of alternatives. Uh, and it was done really, really carefully and well. I mean, the, there is the uh, the line here at Genentech again. We've always known this that our uh, our greatest assets are our people. Uh, they uh, come into work every day. They can switch company 
uh, in the biotech we're, we're in the biotech industry we're, we're surrounded here in South San Francisco by small biotechs many of them have founded by Genentech alumni right uh, but all the major players are around us because this industry this biotech industry that we helped create is now you know really vibrant in the Bay Area so we're constantly competing against talent and uh, you know Roche really understood that the main asset that they were buying was uh, the innovation at Genentech, and that comes from the ability to retain at the time of the merger, but then ongoing ability to attract the very, very best minds. Genentech has done a a really phenomenal job over time of really sitting in uh, the sweet spot between academia and industry. So we're able to attract the very, very best scientists from tenured positions at top universities, uh, when we call uh, and, and say we have a, uh, a, a a key position heading up a lab at Genentech, they invariably, you know, answer that that call. They're invariably interested in talking to us, and and they might not go to industry, but they go. I, I I'll consider coming to Genentech and and talking to you, and many many do. Again, leaving tenured positions in exactly. academia, and and that's uh, and that's pretty cool. And that's because we um we offer them you know tremendous flexibility. Uh, they're able to to continue to publish, you know, in a way which is very similar to the way they were able to do uh, in academia, and and of course you know they've got the network effects. I know you're interested in. You know, we'll talk a little bit about tech, but we know the network effects. They've got the ability to work with other phenomenal people. Right. So that is a momentum thing, the network effects of, of great talent attracting great talent. So all of these things have continued. Yeah, I love that. The um, I, I work a lot with the NSF National Science Foundation, so we support and coach a lot of these university labs and help them. And Genentech and a couple other companies are ones that that comes up when they always talk to me about the professors that some, you know, they want to go into private industry or they want to do their own startup or they want to go work for you or a couple others. There's not too many that, cause you kind of create this, this safe kind of bridge for them to go over and do it. And, and we're not just talking about Stanford. We're talking about all the universities around the world. Right. That's right. So, um, that, that was, that was a brilliant move. The, um, do, do you see two types of cultures? Do you have like a market facing one and, and the uh, science lab one? When I was at at t we did years ago and they were, one of the leading labs in the world. I always noticed it was two or three cultures. But uh, what's it like for you guys? You're more, you're more, you're more techie. You know, I, I think there's a lot more that binds uh, people together culturally at Genentech yep. and, and sets us apart. And, you know, no matter what your role at Genentech is, you're, you're orientated towards uh, the work that goes on in research and early development where the breakthroughs happen. So, you know, that focus on science is something that, that no matter, you know, which area you're in, uh, that, 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 that passion for following the science, that that's a phrase we use. And I, I think, you know, what, what, what does that mean? That means you listen, you know, you listen to the science, uh, you, you, what uh, is the biology, right. Right. the biochemistry telling you, and you have a curiosity, and wherever that takes you uh, is is something we want to we want to we want to follow. So that's that's a really important element. And then everybody's focused on the patients. Dina, I know you said you you 
you you visited our campus if you if you're here on campus you will see that we have pictures of patients on on all the buildings huge pictures of patients i love that that's such a great common common denominator exactly exactly and any any time we have a uh, a, a meeting uh, a town hall uh, a functional meeting invariably we'll have a patient speaker uh, who will talk about their journey uh, and the particular disease they've got cancer multiple sclerosis spinal muscular atrophy and it just keeps it you know in 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 the front of everybody's minds so these are the things that sort of more bind us apart uh, bind us together uh and and uh you know i think then there's the the uh we 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 also talk about casual intensity uh that's also an element of uh, of genentech so people take their their jobs very very seriously but in a very casual way and we like to have fun uh as we work hard and that's you know, a tradition going all the way back to our uh, founders. Uh, today, for example, this afternoon, when I was coming into the uh, into this building, the uh, receptionist reminded me that today we have one of our ho-hos. Uh, and these are informal gatherings, used to be around a beer keg. Now we yeah, have, yeah, you know, more, more, uh, more, more, more types of uh, drinks on offer. But today is the biker, bikers and blues. Uh, oh, I like it. Uh, ho-ho. And uh, people are bringing along their, their motorbikes. Nice. And uh, there is apparently a loudest motorcycle uh, competition. <laughs> so, oh, you know, this is sort of the fun stuff that we do. You know, big, uh, big events around Halloween. The executive committee, you know, dress up on Halloween every year. And uh, we go around campus and, uh, and go to every, every major building on campus and, and go to the cafeterias and, and hand out candy and you know th- these sorts of things um yeah just keep it, just make keep it, it, keep it real because you guys are working on some heavy heavy things and i mean you kind of throw out a term like innovation at genentech and it is a entirely different hurdle that you guys have so you know innovation at some of the silicon valley companies i won't bring them up or make fun of them is is to me it's actually easy and they're happy with a mix of incremental disruptive and some transformative thrown in there now and then I don't think you are. Um, I think you are. You you take a totally different lens. How do you manage that? Yes, I mean absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, we we keep uh, strategically very very focused on innovation and thinking about what is the system, what is the the operating model, mm-hmm. which delivers the maximum amount of uh, of innovation. We believe that that autonomy. Uh, it is really critical for, for scientists uh, to follow their instincts. So I'll, I'll give you, you know, you've already brought up, you know, commercial folks, mm-hmm. business folks, uh, and the scientific folks. We leave the scientists uh, very, very much alone from the, the, the marketing people, uh, the, the business forecasting people. We let them follow the science and there's, there's, there's autonomy as to the work they do. So, for example, Dean, I, I, I don't say to the head of research and early development, gosh, it would be great, you know, uh, respiratory is a, uh, allergic asthma. It's a growing market. Big, huge category. There's not that many competitors. Uh, find us a drug in allergic asthma. Uh, we don't work that way. A lot of other companies do 
sort of worked that way. And around those research teams are swarming lots of business people who are doing forecasts on, on a drug, which, you know, as I've already mentioned, maybe 10 or 20 years away from the market, doing forecasts saying, you know what, this That's is not, a, this is not going to be attractive. Stop your work. I've never well, seen an Excel spreadsheet go out that far in most companies. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, I think this, this is, this is part of the secret source, which I've now revealed, yeah. uh, <laughs> to, uh, to how we continue to innovate. And, and it leads us into areas that we've never been before. For example, we have the, we have the leading drug for, for hemophilia A. We had no presence in hemophilia A. Uh, it was the first, it's the first antibody we now have. Is that like a serendipity? Do you have a lot of that serendipity stuff where you're, you're researching one thing and you find, uh, you find, discover new, new types of uh, cures and materials and technologies? Yes. I mean, it, it, it's not like the world of the small molecules and, and the well-known stories like Vi Viagra, where you, you know, a, a side effect, which then becomes a, a therapy. It, yeah. It's more that, you not know, that, it, not it, that random, it, right? It, it's, it's not that random. Uh, you know, it, a lot of this, a lot of this scientific breakthrough for us starts with deep understanding of the biology. Yeah. Uh, and, and in many cases, the biology will take you into different sorts of diseases. Uh, for example, uh, the immune system, immunology mm -hmm. is really incredibly exciting. It's been important for a long time in, in uh, immune disorders. Um, so diseases obviously like, like rheumatoid arthritis or uh, you know, multiple sclerosis. Um, but it's now really important in, in cancer revving up the immune system to, to attack cancers is, 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 is such a fertile ground. It's producing tremendous uh, results in the, in the fight against cancer. You know, the, so that's, uh, that's, a, that's an area where, you know, our first drugs, we, we weren't sure uh, in, uh, in, in cancer immunotherapy, the, the original work was in other diseases, and then we realized their potential uh, in, in cancer. The, um, you know, when you, I mean, the way I equate this as an innovation leader in a company, they say yes, a lot to things, your people at whatever level have to say no to a lot of things. It's, it's your, your funnel, how you, I mean, your pipeline is different than your funnel, but at, at certain, you must have certain gates where you opt out of things and figure out, Hey, we're not commercializing this. So that, that is a unique skill. I think other industries could learn from you. Um, another thing that's rippling across these industries, we just had the, uh, the CEO of uh, Juniper Networks on and uh, talked a lot about AI and how it's transforming mostly technology and networks for them. But tell us about AI and machine learning in, you know, in, in your world, how is it changing? Um, you know, I guess you could do the market facing stuff or the, or the research. I'm not sure what's, what's more uh, compelling right now to talk about, but I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. We can absolutely talk about both parts, but I, I, if you know, if I had a choice, I, I talk mm -hmm. about it on the um, on the discovery and, yeah. and development. Let's do side. that. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, because again, that's that's at the, the heart of what we're uh, we're about. If we, we believe, if we if we are really truly innovative, then all the other additional steps, of, of which there are many and many challenges. Obviously, getting a getting mm -hmm. a drug to patients, um, they're a lot easier if you've got really a breakthrough 
from an innovation standpoint. So uh, that's again why we we focus so much on this. I mean, you know, I, I I'd say the the, the most telling uh, you know fact that I can give you, which which just indicates I think how how important the promise of of um, data and analytics is for, for for life sciences is the fact that our our head of research and, and early development has been here about a year and a half she joined during the the pandemic she joined from the the, the broad uh, institute at, at mit harvard um she is a computational biologist uh, uh we did not recruit to to head up our you know storied <laughs> and, and uh, really significant research and early development organization we did not recruit a drug developer. We did not recruit a biochemist. Uh, we think the future is uh, is going to be really defined, and innovation is going to be defined by those that can really harness large data sets. I mean, we have a we clearly also have you know a very exciting developing understanding of of, uh, of biology and right. and genomics. But if you can couple that with the ability to to um, Use advanced analytical techniques to use, you know, to, to interrogate huge data sets. It's, you can do it's so much. I mean, exciting. Yeah, I mean, not not just the discovery part. But you can actually compress the window. You can compress time because if you're looking at 10, 20 years, you can make an impact. Whereas most innovation cycles might be a year, two years. Compressing a little time is not that big, but so time is probably a huge one. The um, are you finding it already happening across the industry, or is it still early days? Yes, I mean, you know the. Uh, you know, for for our industry, that, that as you're as you're touching on, Dean, it, you know that that uh, that research and development phase. That's where we spend, you know, the the huge part of our uh, of our investment uh, as a, as an industry uh, and as a company. Yeah, you learn our ability 15, to compress 15 billion. That. Yeah, fifteen billion. Our, our ability to compress timelines, but also increase the probability of success. We we have we fail more than we succeed. Right, I mean that's right. well known about life sciences. Uh, if no you one can, understood and embraced, not 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 yeah, every other industry. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, it's got to be Love understood and embra embraced. Anything we can do to slightly improve that success rate, you know, ha has huge impacts in terms of the research productivity uh, of your organization. And again, the the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I'll just explain a couple of ways we're doing it. We can we can. We can predict uh, a a, uh, a target. Uh, we can use it to to design a an optimum drug to uh, to connect with that target. We can predict uh, very very with with high degree of accuracy uh, the types of side effects that we're going to have to manage uh, in our early development program. Wow! Uh, before and before can, testing, that's amazing. And, and we can uh, we. we one of the concepts that uh, hmm. Aviv, the head of research and early development, uh, Dr. Aviv Regev, yeah, very is, well uh, is introducing is this lab in the loop, which is uh, basically the ability to rapidly go between the data scientists and the uh, experimental scientists uh, in, in the lab, uh, constantly refining uh, the, the, the experiments and the work we're doing. So... I, I mean, this, I, I, again, wow. I feel like I'm giving, uh, 
giving away some of the uh, the secrets. These, these are great secrets. Yeah. It, you, you can make fun of a lot of the guys at IDEO are talking about the agile process. This is agile on steroids and some of the hardest technology to ever wrap your arms around. Oh my gosh, it is. It is. That is that is amazing. The um, you know, brings up another question. Um, sorry to jump around a little bit, but timing and everything. <laughs> You've been there since 2005, tons of different roles in Roche as well. And, and uh, very well thought of became the CEO. You've seen so much change in this company and in this industry. What, what leadership lessons have you learned along the way that you think are helpful for, uh, you know, for your, for your own people, of course, to hear about and as well as the audience. You know, I think one of the things that, uh, that, that I've learned and I'm continuing to learn, um, yeah, I love is, that. is really adapting uh, my leadership. Uh, and when I say that, um, um, you know, I think it, it's it, what, what, what I've realized is that to be an effective leader, you have to figure out, you know, what is the unique uh, contribution that you can bring as a leader and focus on that and not on other things. Because um, you can... You can inadvertently uh, get in the way of other people, and empowerment and accountability are of the organisation. I've already talked about and, and hopefully conveyed, you know, how scientists feel really empowered uh, and have a degree of autonomy. So, uh, as a leader, um, you know, my my job is to is uh, as a as a senior leader at Genentech is is to set a, a vision uh, for the organization, uh, which everybody in the organization can relate to. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's very much to focus on the, the operating model uh, and optimize that. It, it's not to get involved in uh, lots of decisions uh, and create a hierarchy where things are gummed up because they're waiting to, to work their way up to other leaders or myself uh, for decisions. So I think really th what, what I've learned is, you know, focus on what your unique, your unique contribution can be. Right. Uh, and be really disciplined about that. I love that. And I, 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 I know you're somewhat hands-on, but knowing what to get involved in and whatnot, but setting up the, the environment is, is such a, such a tough thing for some CEOs because it's, because things are changing so much and changing so fast. And what I saw during COVID, you know, we're going into 23 now, but it's, um, there was a, um, delayering process where, you know, a lot of the CEOs, they weren't even using their EAs and they were just down in the trenches. And I, I thought that was really helpful for companies and for others. I think they actually changed their leadership style and probably shouldn't have gone too deep, but you know, some of them were, some of them were in emergency mode, like retailers, for instance, and you guys definitely were where we saw you know, all the big farmers cooperating with each other and then the FDA and a lot of co-creation. And I thought it was a fascinating time to watch how companies, people, countries can come together. And do you think that's going to keep going? Because it seemed like a good thing to me. I, I think it is going to keep going. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, we have to remain really conscious of, uh, of pulling through those lessons and not, you know, not reverting back to the way we used to operate. But I see, you know that the partnerships, uh, both public-private and private-private partnerships. Uh, you know, we 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 partnered with you know, some of our most formidable competitors. Uh, we were inspired and 
felt the sense yeah. of urgency addressing this global pandemic. And for example, right. one of the uh, therapeutics that that we're manufacturing at one of our largest manufacturing sites is a is a partnership with Regeneron. Um, and in in uh, pre pandemic and uh, pre pandemic times and in current times, you know, we're vigorous competitors with them in a number of, <laughs> of really important yeah. therapy right. areas. But we decided to to work together, use our our capabilities and, and uh, the capacity that we freed up uh, to be able to produce, you know, almost, well, about 55% of the global uh, demand of, of the monoclonal antibody cocktail that was, uh, right. as you probably remember, was one of the really important therapeutics uh, for, uh, for severe hospitalized uh, COVID. Right. And uh, what are you excited about now in the in the pipeline that that you can talk about? Oh yes, well, I mean, there's there's uh, there's so much to be excited about. We've got a we've got a number of uh, key uh, key drugs in front of the FDA right now, um, but the the one that I would I would touch upon uh, is uh, one where we're waiting for the phase three results. Uh, this is a drug for Alzheimer's. It works on the amyloid pathway. Wow, it's a monoclonal antibody, uh, and we have a long history with this. I mean, it's it's towards the the, the longer end of of uh, research and development in terms of its timescale. So this is an example of a of a drug that's taken twenty years uh, in its journey to this point. Amazing, and we've had failures uh, at various different stages. We've we've learned from our own experience. We've learned from other companies' drugs and their data uh, about, you know, what is the right endpoints, what is the right dose, what is the right titration to get to that optimal dose, because you're trying to, with with these drugs, like, but like so many, you're trying to reach efficacy, but balance the tolerability profile. Uh, we've reached, we've learned a lot about which stage of the disease is optimal uh, to, to treat, because obviously, Alzheimer's has has many different stages, uh, and the the uh, the biology is quite different at those different stages. So, we've taken that all together, and now we're running the the definitive experiment. When I say definitive experiment, I'm referring to a phase three program uh, with uh, two phase threes that will read read out in Q4 of of this year. Right. Uh, we could have, I mean, it's 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 incredibly exciting, right, uh, and nail biting. Um, you are you're being very modest um and that's about when this uh, podcast will air so we will definitely put some links on some articles and coverage on that that is that is just remarkable um especially to have that long-term focus there so many so many people um you know um, alex i really want to thank you for joining us on the program today we you and i could talk for hours and uh, maybe we'll come do an on-site thing sometime but i just for a lot of listeners out there um you know kind of wondering what they should be looking at the younger ones so looking at in terms of their careers so people going into college people graduating people we teach at uh, northwestern it's like a lot of moving things going on in the markets right now and so when they look at 2023 and beyond um what kind of advice would you give them to uh, kind of better prepare themselves for for jobs in the future oh, yes yeah, so we've got a number of a number of suggestions and it's very uh, top of my mind, in, in in some ways, I have uh, I have three daughters, uh, two of them just entering post college the workforce. I know. Uh, I, I, I figured this was on your mind too. <laughs> <laughs> and they both have uh, exciting new jobs starting shortly. Um, 
you know, I, I would say, you know, first and foremost, uh, and this advice I think is more true than ever, which is, is follow your passion. If you, if you're, if you're doing something that you're really excited about, then uh, you're likely to do a really good job with it. So first and foremost, I, I would say that in terms of our industry, um, you know, we touched upon it in this, po this podcast, uh, you know, data is going to be, is going to continue, only continue to transform every single aspect of our industry. In our conversation, we talked about research and early development, but it's going to touch every single aspect. We're one of the industries where, where tech is, is coming latest to. It's yes. disrupted and transformed so many other industries. It's, it's changing our industry. It's changing our industry very, very much for the better. Uh, I believe, as I've already said, it's going to change research and early development. It's going to also uh, change the way that, that patients experience uh, interacting with the industry in a really positive way and, and how customers do as well. So data, and it's all its many forms. Uh, yeah. I, I, I would say, you know, familiarity with, with data science uh, will we'll set you up for a career in this industry really, really well. If you can have totally a science agree. background yep. uh, and data science. And Great advice, uh, Alexander. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to the CEO of Genentech, Alexander Hardy, and this is Dean Tobias with the Reboot Chronicles. I want to thank you for joining us today, and we will see you soon.